0: You turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38 to 48. We're looking at, I think, the greatest sermon ever preached. And the reason I say that, it was, was preached by Jesus. How many think if Jesus is preaching a sermon, we better listen to it? As a matter of fact, he's actually interpreting for us what the Father wanted to convey on the Sermon on the Mount, because in this room right now, we're all Bible interpreters. You guys realize that? Every time you open your Bible and start reading, you're interpreting. Anybody understand that? You're you're the interpreter. The Spirit of God wants to help you interpret, but you're the interpreter. We need to realize that. And so when the Pharisees were interpreting, they saw it a certain way. Jesus comes along and now begins to correct their misunderstandings as to the intent of the Father to the people of God. I was reading a story here, and it was deeply moving. In 1987, an IRA, that's Irish Republican Army bomb went off in a town west of Belfast. 11 people were killed and 63 were wounded. One of the people that was wounded was a man by the name of Gordon Wilson. Gordon Wilson uh, was a merchant. He was a very devout Christian. And in that bombing, he was buried with his 20-year-old daughter under five feet of concrete and brick. Can you imagine? And so he remembered the very last words of his daughter Marie. Daddy, I love you so very much. As she was grasping her father's hands and died. Now, you know, from his hospital bed, this is what Gordon Wilson said. I've lost my daughter, but I bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring Marie back. I shall pray every night that God will forgive them a very interesting response to what happened. When he had recovered from his injuries, Wilson began to crusade all over Ireland for reconciliation between Catholics and Protestant extremists. Who had, and then he said some of the Protestant people now wanted to plan to avenge the bombing, but they had realized because of his tremendous publicity and his message of forgiveness that it would have been political suicide to do that. So rather than do that, They said nothing. Wilson later wrote a book about his daughter and spoke out against the violence, constantly repeating that the only way to bring healing to our nation is through love. He personally met with the people involved in bombing his town. Can you imagine this? And when he met with them, he forgave them. And he begged them to lay down their arms. He pointed out to them even as you have lost loved ones just like me surely enough blood has been spilled and when he died in 1995 all Ireland and Britain honored this ordinary citizen for his uncommon forgiveness I like that expression uncommon forgiveness isn't it sad that you know forgiveness is so uncommon and especially at this magnitude you know, when someone perpetrates that kind of an injustice against you. Gordon Wilson was actually living out the message that Jesus is communicating to us here on the Sermon on the Mount. His life had become a city on a hill. It was a shining light to those living in absolute darkness. He became... Uh, salt and light to a corrupt and darkened society by embracing the message of Jesus' non-retaliation towards cruelty and injustice that had been shown to him. Jesus not only calls us to practice forgiveness and non-resistance, but he's actually going to challenge us to something even more profound than that. He's going to actually ask us to love those who have so deeply wounded and hurt us. Jesus is going to ask us to love our enemies. So we pick up the story here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus said, you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. He's quoting the Old Testament. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said that you're to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. And then he gives this illustration about how God treats human beings on this planet. He said, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God shows goodness to all of humanity, no matter what they're doing. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? In other words, aren't the people who you think are the sinners, they even love people that they like. He says, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now I would say that this is probably one of the most misunderstood and controversial texts in the scriptures. I don't think we fully understand it. We read these texts, we go, what is Jesus really saying, you know? What is this text all about? What does it really mean? I think it generally raises more questions than answers. But if we look at a proper understanding, I think we'll get a response to this text in such a manner that you and I can become a powerful witness to this generation if we fully grasp what Jesus is trying to tell us here. So what is Jesus trying to say to us in this brief segment in his Sermon on the Mount? I think he's showing us the road to transformational living. Jesus is giving us a new set of priorities and principles whereby we sacrifice our rights. Now I'm going to go right against the grain of our whole culture, right by saying that. This is a rights oriented culture. How many know that's true? It's all about my rights. Jesus is going to ask us to lay down our rights and make ourselves available to minister to the needs and the demands of other people. He's going to ask us to give up our agendas and our pursuits in order to fulfill His agenda and His pursuit. That we would actually start to live for a calling that is higher than our own, that we would live to glorify and honor God. So, what does Jesus really mean by these statements? It's obviously that Gordon Wilson understood it, he practiced it, he modeled it. Actually, he was actually becoming godlike in the process. His behavior was so in tune with what Jesus had done on the cross by literally forgiving the very ones who had crucified him. Isn't that true? That's what Jesus did and Gordon Wilson was following suit. We can become an example of the message that Jesus is communicating. One of the dangers we face as believers is when we try to justify our own sinful attitudes and practices. Isn't that true? You know, I'm going to just say this, you can play all the mental games you want to, but at the end of the day, you know, I think we have to get real with ourselves and say, okay, what does Jesus really expect of me? What does he really mean? What is this, how is this going to play out in my life? So how do I handle the personal injustices and evil activities directed at me when I have done nothing to deserve it? Isn't that kind of tough? I, I don't deserve this. This is, I'm being treated poorly. I'm being treated unfairly, unjustly. Somebody's taking advantage of me. So how do I handle those hurts and pains that come as a result? And I think our response reveals a lot about our, our true condition of heart, the essence of our discipleship. Are we responding to personal injustice in a spiritually mature manner, or do we live in defeat, reacting in hurt and anger? Do we give back evil for the evil that's been done to us, in other words? Are we we're just responding in like kind? Because that's the natural response, isn't it? We've been hurt, and we want to hurt back. We want to get back. We want to, you know, somehow hurt the person that's hurt us. Or do we overcome that evil that's been done to us by responding in what I would say is an unnatural and an in, unhuman manner? And it's simply this, that you and I actually do good to those that hurt us. How many think that's not normal? How many say that's probably supernatural and not natural? Okay, that's what we're going to look at today. How can I become a supernatural person? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. How can I become a supernatural person? How can I become just like Jesus? How can I respond in the right way so that I actually become not a victim, but that I actually become a victor in the midst of the sorrow and difficulty and pain that's come into my life. Well, the Apostle Paul certainly understood what Jesus was talking about because in his letter to the Romans, he concludes chapter 12 with the statement. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the question is, how do we become overcome by evil? the moment I begin to express evil back, evil has won. But the moment in that, that, that evil's been expressed toward me and I'm expressing goodness in kind, I'm actually at that moment overcoming the evil. Okay? So let's take a look at this text. I have to repeat something that I've said a few weeks earlier just so that we get the context. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said this, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. In other words, I came to accomplish or complete it. I actually came to, to show you how this was supposed to be developed and played out. So he's challenging us, his followers, really to have a righteousness that uh, exceeds that of the religious leaders. The demands of Christianity are actually far greater than most of us realize. How many, no, that's true. The demands are far greater. Like, you know, I always say this. What, what does Jesus really expect of me? What's the right answer? Everything is the right answer. So Jesus is going to expect everything from me. I would suggest that they are humanly impossible apart from following Christ. We have to allow him to rule and reign in our lives. So I'm gonna leave us with two principles okay, that will help us in the various challenges that come to us. And the first principle that Jesus is teaching us in relationship to personal injustice is that we're not to retaliate. That's the first point, okay? My PowerPoint, for some reason, is frozen, so I'm gonna just go without it. Not retaliate. In other words... We don't give back to people the same treatment they gave us. I mean, no, that's kind of difficult. I mean, everything inside of us, you know, we, we kind of want to get even, uh, you know. Now, I want to just say this. That, that doesn't mean that people who've done evil on a social level, on a societal level, are going to get away with it, okay? We have to follow this. Society still has a responsibility to discipline people. But on a personal note, on a personal level, even though this person may have done something that was illegal towards us, yes, they still need to face society's punishment. But on our side of the equation, we can sit here and stew and feel like they never get enough punishment. You know what I mean? We can live with a lot of brokenness and hurt and anger in our lives because of what they've they've done in our lives. So on a personal level, what Jesus is telling us from the Sermon on the Mount here is that you and I have to exhibit a forgiving spirit. That's what I'm getting at. The reason we can do this is because we've laid down our rights. We've died to our agenda. We're living to bring glory and honor to God. So that's one of the things we have to settle in our hearts. And like, you know, what am I about? What am I living for? You see, Jesus is quoting from... The Old Testament, when he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now you have to understand what's behind that statement. You know what that means? That you and I will not punish somebody more severely than what the crime has been committed. In other words, the punishment has to suit the crime. But so often when you and I have been wronged, we don't want someone just to, you know, be addressed. What we really want is revenge. You know, and a lot of people in the in the judicial system are always unhappy that they don't get justice because what they really want is the other person to suffer even more than what they've suffered. You know, you've made me suffer this much pain. What I really want is for you to suffer as much as I've suffered, maybe even more than I've suffered. And so if it was left up to us as individuals, you know, we would probably be even more abusive to the person than they've abused us because we wouldn't be able to stop. We'd be so hurt and angry, we would just lose it. And so that's one of the reasons why it's important that society is the one that's addressing the punishment and not the individual. So, this eye for eye was not stated as a guideline for personal revenge, but a guideline for judicial and social response to acts that have been committed against individuals. As I've already said, people who are hurt are generally incapable of punishing the offender correctly. How many say that's probably true? It's pretty hard to do that. You know, we're we're wounded. Vigilante justice is not healthy for society, nor is it rational. Personal revenge will bring many abuses. You know, I don't know if you guys kind of follow things. You know the old Hatfield and McCoy feud? You know, where you kill one of our guys, we kill three of yours. Do you follow what I'm saying? You know, isn't that kind of the mentality? If you do this, I'm going to do that much more. That's the kind of thinking that goes on in people's minds. Only a forgiving spirit can release us from the pain of bitterness and a retaliatory spirit. And I am so convinced today that so many people are walking around wounded in pain and are in a prison of unforgiveness. That's where they're living. And they're actually living with a victim's mentality. Can I just say this? All of us in this room probably at some point in life have been wounded, offended, and hurt. Probably we could, if I had you have a show of hands, probably the whole place would have their hands up. You know, but how can we move from being a victim to a victor? See, that's what I'm trying to get at. And what I'm what I'm saying today, what Jesus is saying, and I'm trying to emphasize what he's saying. He says, when you forgive, you move from being a victim to a victor. You're, you're overcoming the evil that's been done to you. And when you're able to pray blessing and are able to do good to those that have done evil towards you, you're not living as a victim anymore. You've overcome that pain and bitterness and anger and all the things that are going on the inside. You're on the other side. You're experiencing victory. You have overcome that evil in your life. Well, let me move on here. I think there's a number of false concepts as we look at the scripture. And I want to just point a few of them out because I think it's very misunderstood. What does Jesus mean when he tells us to turn the other cheek? Or what does he mean when we're to lend those who desire to borrow or to give to those who ask? Now, some people teach that this is pacifism. You know what pacifism is? That you can't have any violent action toward another person. And so somebody as great as Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, he, he basically thought that Jesus' words were to be taken at face value, and he challenged the idea that soldiers or policemen or even courts were even Christian. In other words, there should be none of those things. Now, that's an idealistic understanding of life. How many know most people aren't Christians? So you can't expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. And how many realize that the law... Is actually a good thing. It's actually telling. It's actually designed for the ungodly. The law is designed to set a parameter to show people what is healthy and what is unhealthy, and the law has to be exercised. Otherwise, we'd have anarchy in our world. So there's a law there, but the law is like a schoolmaster or a teacher, bringing us to the person of Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ, then we can we we actually uh, begin to. Live at a different level. That's why Paul says, you know, there, you know, those who are full of the Spirit don't need the law. Because the people that are full of the Spirit are full of love. And when you're full of love, you're living at a higher level. The law does, you know, because once you're loving people the way you should be loving people, you would never do anything to hurt or diminish that person. That's what law, love does. Okay, now, there's other people you know, who, who look at this text and they're basically thinking, you know what, whoever asked me for money, I have to give it to them. So a lot of people walk around just giving people money indiscriminately. Do you think that's what Jesus is talking about? No, I don't think so. And I'll give you the reason why, because sometimes if we give money to a person who has an addiction, what do you think they're going to do with that money? they're going to go back into their addiction because all you're doing is enabling the problem. So you have to you have to understand when I'm giving this money what kind of an impact is this gift going to have on the person's life. So this is not indiscriminate giving folks. You know, I think it's one thing to you know have somebody come up to you and ask for money and you say okay, I'll give you something to eat. I'll take you out and I'll buy you food. You know a lot of you ever had people approach you like that? You know, nine times out of ten, they'll say, no, thank you. Yeah. I'm serious. Because what they want is the money to feed their addiction. But once in a while, they'll say, yeah, I'm starving. And then, you know what? Then you should take them for something to eat and help them. That's fine. That's a good thing to do. I'm just explaining to you, you know, th- here's, here's another application that's probably a little bit more closer to home. You know, sometimes as parents, you know, we, we overgive to our children. You see, we actually are creating an entitlement culture. And a lot of young people feel entitled and they ask for things. And sometimes it's not helpful. We're not helping them develop as a human being. Does anybody understand that? You know, I think you have to be very careful when you're giving to people that you're not enabling them and never helping them to grow up and take responsibility. I think there's times to help, I think there is times to give, I think there is times to give to our children, but then there's times to withhold. I think you have to have a little bit of wisdom here and say maybe this is a struggle they need to go through, maybe this is a character developing moment in their life, and if you and I keep bailing our young people out all the time, we are not going to help them develop and mature. Very quiet in this place, you know, (laughs) but it is the truth, it is the truth. I think we have to have a right attitude when we're wrong. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. How many know that uh, Paul and Silas one day were in the city of Philippi and they were arrested? They were Roman citizens. It was against the law to actually, any physical punishment against a Roman citizen was against the law. But you know what? These people beat both Paul and Silas, both Roman citizens, threw them in jail, shackled them against the wall, I mean, they could have been really upset. They could have said, you know, God, I, I, this is it for the ministry. I've had it. I don't want to be abused like this. this is, I'm out. I'm checking out. I don't care. You know, this is way too hard. Nobody, nobody signed me up to go through this negative experience in ministry. You know, they said, Well we get out of this jail, that's it. We're quitting. We, get, we give up. This is it. You know, I'm going to go get a job. I can make more money doing something else. I don't hear that in the Bible. You know what I hear? I hear these two guys sitting in the jail cell singing praises to God. This is the first example of jailhouse rock. <laughs> because the Bible said, well, as they were praising God, the sh- place was shaken. It was rocking and rolling. And I'll tell you, the cells were popping. <laughs> Doors were opening, right? That's what it says. I'm reading in Acts chapter 16, and, and the jailer said, hey, you know, he was about to kill himself because he thought all of his prisoners had escaped. Paul said, don't harm yourself. You know, and then he began to share the gospel with him. You see, Paul and Silas were in, you know, prisoners were all listening to him. How many know that when you're in a prison and all you can do is grumble and complain in that circumstance, when there's somebody else singing in the next cell, you go, they've got something I don't have. How many know that's true? And how many know that's true in life? That a lot of times God allows circumstances and situations that you and I are guided into that are not pleasant and exciting, and we're walking around, you know, upset and frustrated and grumbling and complaining. And you know what? How many know God's certainly not being glorified in your life in that moment? But if you and I can begin to praise God and sing our hearts out in the midst of all of our sorrows and pain, and that's an amazing thing, and people are looking at our life and they're going, What do you have to sing about? And that you can say there's a good God and that all things work together for good. And I know that good things are gonna come out of this very challenging time in my life. And God is still good and God is still great and I can still praise him and allow my soul to enjoy the presence of the living God because even though you've put me in prison, Paul and Silas were not in prison in their soul. They were free in their spirit. And you and I can enjoy that freedom of heart because we're able to praise God who's in control and directing the steps of our lives. And then we read that expression. It says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. How many know most people are right-handed? <laughs> you ever thought about this expression? You know, somebody slapping you on the right cheek? That would have to be a backhanded slap. Anybody thought about that? Because if you're slapping them with your right hand this way, you're slapping their left cheek. It doesn't say that. It says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, and if they're face-to-face with you, they have to give you a backhanded slap. You know, how many have ever heard that expression that, you know, that was a slap in the face? It's an expression. You know, and I think we need, to, it's a figure of speech. And often what it means is that we've been insulted, right? We've been verbally insulted. We've been, there's an, in, in, you know, we're a little bit, so what Jesus is doing here is not, not telling us to become passive. He's empowering us to stand up to the evil that comes against us. You say, well, how in the world do we stand up to the evil that's coming against us, Pastor? When people are you know, saying all kinds of evil things and insults and all these manner of conversation against us. Well, I like what Warren Worsby writes. He says, psychologists tell us that violence is born of weakness and not strength. It's the strong person who can love and suffer hurt. It's the weak person who thinks only of themselves and hurts others to protect themselves. In other words, they retaliate back. Isn't that interesting? You know, when we stand up to the perpetrator and we don't have to answer back in the same manner, that's a very powerful statement. It shows them that they're not really in control. Even in the face of provocation and beatings, Jesus himself did not defend himself or retaliate. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one, to him who judges justly. You know, every, you know sometimes things happen in our life. We go, okay, God, You know, you know the full story. How many know there's times in our lives we've said things and done things and we didn't have the full story? Anybody know that's true? And we probably went off half-cocked and we said a bunch of stuff that wasn't right and the other person's sitting there and they're listening to us rant and rave, right? And, and uh, you know, in that moment when they don't answer back, who's, in, who's really, what's God doing? He's watching this whole thing. He's watching this whole transaction. So if you and I are living to glorify God, I think sometimes we better be a little more quiet. And on the other side, when someone's doing that to us, we can sit there and go, "Okay, God, you're my defender." You know, I'm not going to defend myself. I've had people do that to me, v- verbally get abusive and, you know, put me down and all the rest of it and I go, "I'm not going to answer any of these things." First of all, they're not true. No matter how much I say, they're not going to listen. How many of you know that when people are angry, they're not going to listen? Anybody figure that out? Just let them talk. Just let them go. They're not going to listen anyways. If you try to defend yourself, it just makes them more mad. Anybody figure that one out? That's what happens. Jesus made no defense, but he just committed himself to the Father. He just said, okay, you know what's going on here. Billy Bray, before his conversion, was a pugilist, which is a nice fancy word for boxer. Okay. And he was a good boxer. So one day after becoming a Christian, you know, he just, he, he 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 actually really began to share his faith. Later became an evangelist, and he was working in the mines. And he was working with another guy who really was afraid of Billy Bray because I mean this guy was a real tough guy, right? And so he thought, okay, here's my opportunity. He's become a Christian now. The Bible says he's not supposed to retaliate, so he hit him, and he hit him hard. And Billy Bray, because you know, with any, without any provocation, you just hit him, just boom. And he could have easily taken that guy out and beat him to a pulp. But you know what he did? He just said, may God forgive you, even as I forgive you. And he didn't say anything else. He turned and walked away. That really shook that guy up. He began to realize, you know what, this, he got a cream to me and he didn't do it. Something's happening in this man's life. And as a result of that, a short time later, he gave his life to Christ because of the transformation he saw in Billy Bray's life. Jesus is teaching us to surrender our rights. That's really hard in a rights-driven culture such as we have. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what Jesus is striking at is our constant insistence upon our rights, our legal rights, even though at times we will suffer injustices. You know, it's so amazing to, to me that, and I've seen this over the years, how many times people who've had every right to maybe go to court and prosecute a person have decided, you know what? maybe on, on a, you know, for a financial reason to decide, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna suffer the loss. Because, you know what, as a Christian, I'm just gonna not address it that way. Think about what Paul writes in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter two, this is what it says about Jesus. It says there, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In other words, for the sake of a relationship, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in other words, Jesus laid down his rights. And I think as a Christian, you and I are called to do the same. You see, the moment you and I lay down our rights, something powerful begins to happen. Number one, God will exalt us. That's what it says in the very next verse. It says, therefore, God exalted them to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. See, when you and I lay down our rights, we're just basically saying, okay, God, I'm just gonna do your will. And I'm gonna let all of the results come from you. I'm gonna let all that stuff happen from your vantage point. It's very powerful. Do you know there's a power that comes in our lives When we become indifferent to our own selfish interests. Very powerful thing happens. How many have ever heard of the man George Mueller? Ever heard of George Mueller? Know who he is? How many of you heard of George Mueller? Let me just tell you who he is. Most of you don't know who he is. He was a man about 100 years ago who had a tremendous amount of faith and he was concerned about all these kids that didn't have parents in in England. And so he began to take in kids. And, you know, he wasn't a rich guy, so he just started praying and God would provide the needs to take care of these kids. He didn't tell anybody, he just kept praying to God. Well, pretty soon, he was taking care of five kids. Then it was 10 kids. Eventually, at the end of his life, he was taking care of 2,000 kids. How many think that's amazing? And you know what, You know how the money was coming in? He didn't tell people, he was praying. He just prayed it. it. That's an amazing man of faith. I mean, he, there's a lot of amazing stories. There's books about George Mueller and his faith. But you know what he wrote one day? It says, there was a day when I died utterly, uh, excuse me, I utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censor. I died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. In other words, what he was saying is, I'm only living for one person now. It's not about me, it's not about what you think, it's about what God thinks. And when you get to that place in your life, That's when you become the most effective. How many can see that's true? Because you're not really worried about what people are saying, thinking, and doing. You're not even interested in sparing yourself. You're just saying, God, I'm only concerned to bring glory and honor to you. Now, I think we have to go back. Having said that, let me go back and temper that statement with this. And I I agree with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the Christian is not to be concerned about personal insults and personal defense. But when it is a matter of honor, justice, righteousness, and truth, he must be concerned and make his protest. In other words, we're not here defending ourselves, but we will defend others. We're not here defending our interests, but we're defending the interests of others. Especially the interests of God. We're concerned about what's right, and we're going to stand up for those things. And how many know you have to stand up to evil? You really do have to stand up to it, but not for your own sake. This is not about you. Now, what is interesting in the story here, Jesus says, if someone compels you to go a mile, go too. How many you know you have read that? go, what's he talking about here? Well, see, in the time of Jesus... They were under oppression by the Romans. And the Romans had a law that a soldier could ask someone to carry their military equipment for a mile. That was part of the law. It was compulsory. And so, you know, maybe they were gonna go off somewhere and so they'd pull in a village and make them all carry their military equipment. That's a lot of weight. And they'd have to go for a mile. And Jesus says, listen, if they're asking you to go for a mile, which is compulsory, go two miles. What is Jesus basically saying? Don't just do what's required, do above what's required. You need to learn to become a second miler. That's what Jesus was teaching us. You know, so often in life, we, people ask us to do something, and all we do, if we stop what they've asked for, sometimes it's even more dynamic when we go beyond what people are asking for. Isn't that true? That's when the Spirit of Christ is really showing in our lives. Jesus also challenges our attitude toward those things which are unpleasant in our lives like taxes legislation leaders right you know so often we can get really frustrated by what's happening to us what's our attitude do we walk around complaining criticizing grumbling he's challenging our Christ- as Christians our state of mind and spiritual condition should be such that no power can insult us. You say, why is that, Pastor? Because we're dead to our agenda. <clears throat> you see, how many in this room, When there's some things that people do that bug you. Anybody here? You have to be honest. There's some things that people do that bug you. How many can say, that's true, Pastor? You know what I'm gonna tell you today? Identify what it is that's bugging you and unplug it. Okay? That's the answer. See, because you know what? As long as somebody's around, they're going to keep hitting the same button. So if you want to be upset and frustrated by the button being hit, just just disconnect the button. You say, what does that mean, Pastor? It means I need to say to myself, why is this bugging me? And what can I do to unplug what's bugging me? You know, is it my ego, my pride? Why does this bug me? Why is this irritating me? I need to let it go. I need to just forget about this stuff. Are we catching on? See, that's part of dying to yourself. That's a very important thing. See, the final illustration that Jesus brings to our attention is the demand of people for our resources. And I've already talked about that. I'm going to move on to the second point, which is simply that the second principle Jesus lays down is how love overcomes evil. The first principle is simply I need to have a non retaliatory forgiving spirit. The second one is I need to love people. How many know love has the power to transform lives? Our problem is that our love is limited and selective. How many say that's true? I have a limited amount of love and it's quite selective. True? Let's be honest. Do you want me to tell you what God's love is like? His love is unlimited and and he's not selective. Because he's loving everybody. I mean, that's amazing. God can love everybody. You know, the person you can't stand, God loves. How's that? That's, that, that just tells you how un, you know unselective God is, right? I mean, how can He love that person? Man, look at him. You see, Jesus tells a little story. He was a lawyer trying to justify. His life choices. He goes, well, who's my neighbor? See, Jesus said to love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Right? I'll love him. Tell me who he is. And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus does something really crazy because he's talking to a Jewish audience and he's telling them, you know, that there's a guy gets beat up. He's a Jewish guy. who gets beat up on the road going down to Jericho. It's a very fascinating story. He gets all beat up. Then the priest comes along and he goes on the other side. See, the Bible says that if you touch a dead person, you're defiled. Now, a little interesting story, I pick up the cue, he's going down, Jerusalem's high up, so he's actually done his job at the temple, he's heading down to Jericho. So he's really, you know what, he could have stopped now, he's done work, he could have just pulled over and helped this guy, but you know, he didn't do that. Of course, most of the Jewish people, yeah, what can you expect from a priest, right? Levi does the same thing, well, what can you expect from a Levi? So they all think that the hero of the story is going to be the Jewish common guy coming along and digging this guy out, right? But no. what does Jesus do? He has a little twist to the story. He goes, oh yeah, there was a Samaritan that came by. You know, the Samaritans are the people the Jews had a prejudice against. He stopped and helped the guy. He made the Samaritan the good guy. And he said to the lawyer now, he said, who do you think's the neighbor to this guy? And he's kind of embarrassed now. He said, well, I suppose the guy that helped him. He goes, go and do thou Likewise. See, he's challenging us to move past our prejudices and start doing something to love people that are not so lovable. You know, nowhere in the Old Testament did it teach to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. The Old Testament taught us taught was teaching was to love one's neighbor. And let's face it, Israel had a hard time loving their neighbors. Matter of fact, the story of Jonah is a classic example. You know, Jonah was called by God to go preach the gospel to the Ninevites in the city of Nineveh. And how many know, if you know your background story, the Ninevites were their enemies. And Jonah didn't want to go, not because he was afraid of those guys, but he was concerned that just maybe if he went there and preached, they would actually listen to what he was saying. And if perchance they would repent, God would spare them of all things. And he didn't want God to spare those rotten Ninevites. So he was not going to go down and help them out. That's the story. Read it. And what does God say to Jonah at the end? He says... You have more concern over that stupid little leaf that I popped up one day to give you a little shelter than you are concerned about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. What is God saying? These people are spiritually and morally ignorant. They need someone to tell them. They may not be such bad neighbors if they got their life in tune with Almighty God. And isn't that the truth that a lot of people out there doing stupid, terrible, bad things are people who are wounded and broken and don't know any better. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. And we're called by God to bring this amazing message of grace to their lives. Then you have some people say, yeah, but pastor, you know, how about, you know, the, the psalms? You know, I've kind of read a few psalms It made it sound like, you know, these guys... Uh, had some nasty things to say. You know, these imprecatory Psalms? How many have ever read them? You know, like, God, why don't you kill these guys? You know, how many have read those kind of Psalms? And we kind of look at them and go, how does that fit in with God loving people? Well, some see that as a possi- possibly supporting the idea that God hates sinners, but these Psalms must be understood not as a personal vin- uh, vindication against enemies but as a person's concern with the glory of God and God's ultimate justice against all wickedness and sin. So there's a little bit of a different understanding as to what an imprecatory psalm is all about. It's not about, oh God, this person hit me, therefore would you please wipe them out for me. That's not the idea behind an imprecatory psalm, though there's moments we might feel like that. Okay, we could probably identify, but no, I think the psalmist is saying, these are the people that have done these things that are wrong. So let me just close uh, with a couple of thoughts. In the very end of the passage, what does it say? Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now when we read that, what's the first thing that comes into our mind? We're thinking to ourselves, oh, i got to be sinless, right? But that's not what perfect means. Perfect means I need to be God-like. I need to behave like God behaves. I need to be mature, I need to grow up, I need to act like God would act in this situation. So he's not talking about sinless perfection here, folks. He's talking about you know, the, the maturing of our Christian lives. And when we mature and become like God, we're gonna actually behave like God. And what does God behave like? He's a forgiving God. What does God behave like? He's a gracious God. He gives people what they do not deserve. It's called grace. How many are thankful that God gave you and me grace? Aren't you glad that God forgives us? Amen. So what is he saying to us? He says, when you grow up, you'll be just like me. And when you're just like me, you're going to show people grace. You're going to give them what they don't deserve. You're going to bless them rather than crush them. Right? That's what he's talking about here. That's what we need to understand. Let me close with a very interesting story. How many know that Japanese and Korean people have a conflict? It's a racial conflict. How many know that? How many know a little bit about World War II when Japan conquered a lot of the Asian countries? And not only were Koreans conquered, so were a lot of other people, Filipinos, Chinese, so the Japanese are not popular in that part of the world because a lot of the atrocities that were committed during World War II. So here's this young Korean man, student, goes to Japan. He's learning the language, and while he's there, he notices that there's a Japanese laborer. He's he falls off the tracks of one of those high-speed trail trains, you know, and he can see the train is coming from a distance. So he this young Korean guy jumps down to help rescue this Japanese worker, and unfortunately, they, he couldn't rescue them. Both of them are killed. Okay? So in Japan, this makes like the front page, you know, Korean student tries to save Japanese man. Now you can imagine the impact it had on all of the racial tensions and uh, prejudices that are going on here. So the prime minister now realizes you know what, we need to do something about our relationship with Korea. And so he reaches out to have reconciliation and apologizes for the atrocities that the Japanese people committed in World War II to the Korean people. Now that probably would have not happened if it had not been for a young Korean man giving his life to try to save a Japanese man. And as one man said, I can't even read these guys' names, so that's why I'm not using their names. This guy's about 62 years old. He says, when I read that in the paper, he said, I was totally shamed that a stranger, a foreigner, a Korean, would try to rescue a Japanese man. You see, it takes sacrifice to break barriers. It takes sacrifice to break racial prejudices. It takes sacrifice to reach into people's lives and bring hope and grace. How many see that? And can I tell you where it all comes down to? It's where God himself sacrifices himself. So when you and I are looking up at Jesus, what we should be thinking of is we were standing at the foot of the cross. We were the ones that were crucifying him. How can you say that, Pastor? It was your sin and my sin that brought him there. We need to see it that way. And what are the words of Jesus to us when we least deserve to be forgiven by him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When you and I forgive, it is so powerful. When you and I love, it is so powerful. It changes the world around us. And it changes not only our hearts, but it changes people around us. Let's stand as we close the service in prayer. You know, I realize today that forgiveness is a huge issue. I realize today we've all been touched by brokenness and pain. I realize today that you've suffered in some time in your life, but we can allow that to control us. We can allow that to become like a prison for us, where we're captured by a person in the past who has hurt us deeply. The only way to come out of that prison house of unforgiveness is to forgive. But you know what? It takes something greater than ourselves to do that. This is supernatural. You know, to err is human, to forgive divine. We need the Spirit of God. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. How many know in the future, somebody's going to hurt you? It's going to happen. I can't, we can't go around going, God, why did you let this person hurt me? That's how I think. Why me? And I was kind of thinking as I was going to go up here this morning, my pastor I was a new believer. His favorite, I, 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 I heard this over and over and over again from him. He said, you keep, he says, why me? And then he would say, why not you? Why not you? You know, why does God have to do all these things? Why does it, God doesn't have to shelter us from every bump. God's committed to my growth and development. God's committed to helping me become like Christ. Well, if I never have a problem in my life, I never have somebody hurt me, I'll never practice forgiveness. You ever thought of that? See, you and I have to to become like Christ. We have to act like Christ. So we're going to have experiences in our life that's going to cause us to make a decision. Are we going to act normally and humanly? Are we going to act lovingly, forgivingly, and supernaturally? And I'm going to tell you right now, I cannot act lovingly, forgivingly, and supernaturally in myself. What I need is the spirit of the living God, the spirit of God's love, to so fill my heart that when that moment happens, instead of my natural, normal, wounded self coming out, God's grace and forgiveness and love flows from me. Isn't that true? It's the truth. You know what, we need more of God's love. We need to open our hearts. You know, I was thinking of Charles Finney. It said in his conversion, he said, all of a sudden when I opened my heart, it says it was like liquid waves of love flowed into me. It changed his entire life. You know, we need God. We need the love, God's love to so fill us that it removes the brokenness and the woundedness and the unforgiveness in our hearts. We need to run into our souls like a mighty rushing river that would sweep away all that debris. And so fill us. No wonder Paul prayed to the, to the Father for the Ephesians and he said that, the, that you might comprehend and understand the love of God that surpasses human understanding. We need that kind of a river flowing into our lives. I need that. I have no idea what tomorrow holds. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. But I know that if I don't have God's love flowing in me, I'm not going to be a match for the evil that's going to come against me. But I know if God's love is ruling and reigning in my heart, I know that all the evil against me, I can overcome it because I can respond in goodness. I can respond in forgiveness. I can respond in blessing. I can respond by doing the good thing. And by doing good, I overcome the evil. But if I retaliate in kind, evil now has won that's how evil wins in our lives. It attacks us, and when we respond back in evil, we've just lost. We are now a victim, but I want to be a victim. How many say, you know, I want to be a victor? I want to overcome these things. I can't control what's going to happen to me. I can only control, you know, the response, and even then I don't seem to control it very well, Pastor. What am I saying to us today? Open your hearts. Open your hearts to God's love. With every head bowed today, how many say, you know what? I need this river of love to flow into my life to remove the broken debris of unforgiveness and hurt and shame and all the past stuff. I need the love of God to so fill me that when the future challenges come my way, that love would flow for me. And if that's you, just raise your hand. I got both my hands up. I want to be so full of God's love that nothing on this planet will touch my soul. I'll just flow with his love. Let's pray. Lord, we're opening our hearts today. How we need you. How we need you to let go of the past. How we need you, Father, to allow this river of grace to flow through our soul that whatever comes our way, whatever challenges that might present itself, no matter what evil would come against our soul or our family, Lord, all we have inside of us is a river of love and forgiveness and goodness and grace so that we can rise up and have the right response in that moment. And we thank you for that. And we praise you for your honor and for your glory. May we live to bring honor and glory to you in Jesus' name. God bless you as you leave this morning.